My name is Brie Castellini. I used to be a spy. My name is Chris Cherry. I used to not have a puppet of myself. And this is Burn Noticed, where hosts copy each other's things for the intro several weeks apart. And also, it is a weekly rewatch of the USA television masterpiece Burn Notice about Michael Weston, a spy. Did you do a puppet thing already? I definitely did a puppet thing. Oh my god. I think I, I, think I might have even spe- used the exact phrasing that you just did. That's delightful. I don't pay attention to things that you say. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's about uh, it. The audience should pay attention when I say, throughout this podcast, we will be rating each episode on whether it is A, an episode of television, B, a great episode of television, or C, a great episode of Burn Notice. If you want to know what complicated calculations go into these ratings, wait until the end, where we will explain them. Also, if you or anyone you know knows Jeffrey Donovan, or anyone who worked on Burn Notice for realsies, please get in touch. You can send us questions, suggestions, compliments, uh, confirmations of knowing people on Burn Notice who might want to talk to us, and uh, as a reminder, absolutely no criticism of any kind to burnnoticedpodcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter at burnnoticedpod. And as always, my friends, that is burn noticed with a d if you're jeffrey donovan you can have criticism yeah i think i think our rule was that if you've worked on burn notice you can give us criticism but no one else is allowed to so if you want to like sneak in criticism you better hook us up with a person from burn notice and then whisper in their ear like a spy what that you want them to say to us that's the only way we will accept criticism so get on it however if you worked at usa network but not on burn notice specifically you can't criticize us. Yeah, unless uh, unless you hire us. See that I'm adding a new rule. If you hire, if you, work if you hire USA us. networks and you hire us to write for, I don't know. Did fucking what? Did that Born Identity show get picked? I don't up know if it again? still exists. Let's see. Remember when we did that, guys? Remember we when we did, did when that. we did Born Noticed when we, we got the first four episodes did. of a Born Identity TV show early. I think for it some got canceled. Reason? It was great. Um, I what mean, what was it called? It was called Treadstone. Um, Treadstone. Yeah, it was fine. When I said it was great, I meant the fact that we got those episodes was great. The episodes themselves were fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was It was canceled in May. Canceled after one season. Yeah, I forget what's on USA now. It received a Metacritic score of 47 based on seven critics in- indicating mixed or average reviews. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave it an approval rating of 44% based on 16 credits. <laughs> and the consensus reads, while Treadstone is an action-packed and frenetically paced as you'd expect from the Bourne universe, it lacks the narrative momentum and cohesion necessary to set it apart. It sucks for them. Yeah. Anyway, what's this episode about? Uh, oh, you don't want to do any talking? Is that it? That's all the small talk that we get I mean, to we do? did a little bit of small talking. I guess we didn't do a ton. We could do more. How are you? How are you doing? How have you been? I'm, I'm still coughing. You're still coughing? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, like, at this point, I think I might just be dying. Um, but, oh, I guess relevant to some of our Burn Noticed listeners is that we released a new bonus episode a while back <laughs> that canonically right now we released the new Brie and Chris are Depressed episode, like, three months ago. Uh, when you're hearing this, but when we're recording it, it just came out like two days ago because I didn't up the storage amount, and so it was supposed to post on Tuesday, and then it didn't post on Tuesday, and it was a whole thing. But yeah. uh, if for whatever reason you have not listened to it yet, possibly because you don't know uh, that we had another podcast, the one that originated this one, go listen to Brie and Chris are depressed. There's one new episode. <laughs> Exactly. And that's it. We're it. not posting new episodes, but you should go listen to that one new episode that we posted yeah. three months ago. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you haven't, go listen to that. Go do that. Yeah. 
Um, You're right. I have nothing. No, I have nothing. <laughs> let's, get into the, wanna, let's get into burn notice. <laughs> if we want to sip. If we want to situate us in time, it is the 57th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination today. Ooh. So, how exciting. There you Happy go. Happy anniversary, Mr. President. <laughs> I've been watching The Crown, and I just watched the episode with the Kennedy assassination, so it was, like, weirdly. <laughs> Are you watching The Crown because of Gillian Anderson? I Well, I wa- partially. I'm also just watching it because, like, I want to see the Diana stuff. Got it. I'm like I'm a little bit of a sucker for Diana stuff. Like, sure, bring it on. Diana was interesting. Yeah, and, I I was I never got really into the like British royal family. I think I was too young to really have like m- thought about Diana in any significant way before she died. So like she was kind of not a public figure by the time I was aware of public figures. And even afterwards, like I, that was never a phase I went through. I think that. It's fascinating that we did this to these people. See, I don't even know really what we did. <laughs> That's I mean, like, truly how little I know. No, but I mean, like, the fact that, like, it's so wild that there's just this family that's, like, still just, like, royal for some reason. Like, it's it's such a weird anachronism that these people, like, live in that I think it's kind of fascinating. Also, yeah, like, the cast is really good. Like, it's a really well-acted not terribly well-written show (laughs) about a woman who doesn't have a lot of agency in her own life. I do think it's sort of interesting watching it because, like, Queen Elizabeth is not the kind of person, personality-wise, that is, like, the lead character of a television show because she's just this kind of, like, quiet, awkward horse girl who, like, yeah, doesn't have a lot of agency in her own life. So it's, like, not the kind of person that you get build a show around. So it's kind of fascinating. I wonder if it's also because we really don't know that much about her, like, personally. And they also have to, like, tiptoe around not getting sued by the royal family. I don't know. I don't actually know how it really interacts with, like, the actual I know royal that family some of and how them they feel about the crown. It. They, different people have different feelings. I don't know if the queen has watched it. I think. Like, I wonder she, what the queen watches. What's her Netflix binge this quarantine? I don't know. Again, I. she really likes horses, apparently. So yeah, I don't know what the queen watches. I think she has conservative tastes. I, I have not been watching as much TV recently. What I've been doing is reading books. In the past uh, two weeks, I have oh, read five my... books. In the past month, oh, I have Jesus. read six so. Oh, we're all we're all very impressed with you. Yeah, yeah. Last Miss, night I, read I don't two watch books. TV. I read I, books. <laughs> I mean, listen the 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 archive of this show knows how much TV. That exactly, I watch. it's a weird. Yeah, that la- you're making a play towards like respectability. I'm not making now. a play. I'm just saying, you know, usually I'm the one that's like, so this is the TV show I've been watching instead of Burn Notice. Now you're doing that, and what I've been doing is reading books. Last night I read two books. I read a full two novels last night. And granted, the ones that I read last night, like I've been reading um, all of Maureen Johnson's uh, books that I haven't read since I stopped being in her core market uh, for YA fiction. But she's a very good writer, and I like her her mystery style stuff she's been doing recently. So I've been devouring all of those um, in anticipation of the new one that's coming out in 2021. This year, in fact. The year that this episode is being heard. But anyways. Exactly. And I also read Rachel Bloom's book in one night. Oh, was that good? Yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, there's it's not one of those a lot. Books. Yeah, it's one of the books where if you like this funny person, you will read the book about their life and know slightly more about them. 
You know what else I'm curious about? What's that? This this week's episode of Burn Notice. Which one is it? Well, it is the one that occurred during season four, episode 13. It's called Eyes Open. It occurred during that episode? It occurred during this episode. The episode that we're about to talk about occurred during the episode, season four, episode 13. It's called Eyes Open, which aired November 11th, 2010, and was written by Jason Tracy and directed by our gal, Denny Gordon. Also starring, well, not starring, but she has a cameo in this episode. Who does? Denny Gordon. Oh, does she? Yeah. She plays like the senator or whatever in the news footage at the beginning. That's fun. Yeah, I didn't look fun. that up. <laughs> I didn't pay attention to that. But cool. Good for you, Danny. You get yours, girl. So I'll read the IMDb description in a second. But now that you've quoted a trivia, I want to see if there's more trivia on IMDb. So there's two other pieces of trivia for this episode. <laughs> Uh, other than the fact that Denny Gordon plays the senator. Uh, the first is that Jesse tells the guy at the university that he is Detective Artest and Fee is his partner, Shannon Brown. Oh, yeah, Ron Artest and Shannon Brown were two L.A. Lakers basketball players. Not even like Miami Heat people. You're going to pick a fucking L.A. team? Okay. Uh, and then I apparently- mean, he's trying not to get caught. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> it's one thing when, like, Sam is, like, naming them after television characters from, like, 20 years ago. But, like, <laughs> like these are basketball players. Like, I recognized their names. Well, I recognized Artest. Yeah, I knew I who not. he was. And so I was like, I knew these names. Like, these I, names all sound I, fake. What I... What I did notice is, in during that scene, he makes a big deal of saying Fee's name was Shannon Brown, and like I wondered why, but I was like, okay, and then I moved on, so I didn't notice. And also, the other the other trivia is NOC stands for non official cover. I don't know when NOC came up. That's but the good name to know of the list. list. Oh, the list that they they keep calling it the knock list. Yeah, clearly, don't care. Uh, do you want to know how, how IMDb would describe this episode, Chris? How would it? As Michael tries to catch a mad bomber who was hired by one of Michael's former clients to kill a kidnapper, Jesse reluctantly helps Fee find the man who possesses the Bible that has the information on who burned Michael. There's a lot of clauses in that sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the people who uh, is a real like burn notice IMDb description, but it's also just like writers. A real like old lady who swallowed the fly construction to burn notice plots. Yeah, gotta get the thing to get the thing to get the thing to get the thing to get the guy. I mean that that's also kind of how burn notice is plotted. So like there's an extent to which maybe we give them a break. <laughs> yeah, that's that's no, that's, that's what I'm saying. How I'm not burn like, notice gets plotted. I'm not like making fun of the people who like wrote the description. I'm just like the brave souls who dedicate yeah, yeah. their time and energy to writing IMDb descriptions for burn notice. Exactly. The proud Americans. The proud American patriots. All right, you want to jump into these weeds with me? Let's get in the weeds. Let's go. Let's go. So we start uh, with Michael unconscious in the hospital, apparently having been that way for three days, according to a weary Fiona, who then kicks him in frustration because he won't wake up. And then it finally wakes him up. And they do a cute little callback to the pilot where Michael kind of like getting his bearings is like, where am I? And Fiona says, Miami. And then she remarks that the doctors told her it's a miracle the bullet didn't hit his heart. And that's a good thing. It must be a good thing that his heart is so small. Fiona like glares at him, but it's actually kind of a sweet moment where she's like so scared that she's just being so mean to him. And he's like clearly so comforted by her being there. And it's very sweet. And I like this. I like this starting scene. 
Um, and then we head up to a beautiful rooftop uh, where Michael is like clearly still very hurt. He's in a wheelchair and Jesse comes by to check up on him, sort of. Uh, not really. They just do some little snipes back and forth. But basically, um, he's like, I came back not because I care if you're okay, but because the job's not done. And Michael's like, cool. Well, thanks for coming we are back. Men. Yes, we are men and we do work. Uh, but basically, the this scene is just, it's tense. They're going to keep working together until this whole Bible thing has been taken care of. Because once Jesse starts a job, you know, he might be pissed at all of them. But ultimately, like, he is a good guy. And that's his thing. Is he doesn't let bad guys get, a, get away with stuff. So uh, they are in agreement. They are in a tense agreement. But they are in agreement. And that is the end of our cold open. Burn that it's a fine cold open, you know. Uh, I really fine. did like the opening scene in, like, the hospital hospital because, like, Fiona is – I feel like the two episodes we watched this week, this week and next week's episodes, I feel like Fiona was kind of on fire. Like, she's really getting into the, the – the writers, I feel like, are getting more into the groove of, like, <laughs> Fiona is just, like, violent, but it's only to cover up her fear. But it turns into some really fun moments. I don't know. I just feel like she was more crystallized this week no, and yeah, last week. I agree. I think she's she's really fun. And I like watching her be a little vulnerable. It's season four. And watching her cover it up with absolute violence. It's season four. They're learning how to rate their characters. I know. It's crazy. Uh, but speaking of writing their characters, then we get to, I think, maybe one of my favorite scenes in this episode, which is like a nice little slow walk-in talk for Madeline and Michael. And we have a couple of cuts in the beginning, but for the most part, Denny Gordon just like lets them talk. And Michael's kind of like limping, like carrying along an IV with him. And he and his mother are kind of just going back and forth about how she's like really worried about him. And she she's not letting him go back to the loft because the stairs are not going to work for him. So she's going to have him stay at Jesse's old place uh, in her, you know, her converted garage. And it's actually like a really nicely done scene by these two performers. I love it when they just let these two performers act off each other. Like it reminded me of a scene in either season one or season two where it's like from the perspective of a cabinet. I don't know if you remember this scene, but I remember it really distinctly. Oh, yeah. No, I remember the scene. It's the one that's just a long take. Exactly. Well, because like anytime these two are in a scene together, it's automatically very fun. But when they're in a scene together and there's not a lot of cuts, they just let the actors work themselves. Like it's so good. They give them the space. And when Bernard just like gives itself some space especially in more emotionally wrought scenes i think it 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 makes a lot it it gives them an opportunity to actually perform and these two performers are so good together and i just i really liked it i thought it was like really vulnerable on michael's part and kind of vulnerable on madeline's part but like she's kind of in charge and michael kind of has to acknowledge that she's in charge because he's very hurt and i just yeah i thought it was lovely i thought it was a nice little moment and then at the end of it unfortunately uh, a code orange goes off in the hospital so shit's going down and like, you know, security's being called and like a lot of doctors are being called in. And so Michael goes kind of limps over to find Sam, who's kind of just probably keeping an eye out, making sure nobody comes for Michael. And he's like, Sam, what's going on? And Sam's like, there was a massive explosion nearby. So I think they're just prepping all of the like doctors and stuff to be ready for an influx in patients. And they're like, at... That seems suspicious. <laughs> it must be about us. And they're right. It is about them, sort of. It is about so. them. I think there may have been some sort of indication that it might be about them, but I couldn't. I didn't quite catch what it was. No, so I think they were basically just like, was it, they were like, is this a coincidence? And they're like, I don't know. A lot of weird shit's been going on in Miami recently that's all been related to what we're up to. So it's probably not a coincidence that an explosion went off and like they're calling it a gas leak. But like, that's a pretty intense gas leak. And like, how many times are gas leaks actually gas leaks? And how many times are they us th- blowing things up? 
So I don't, like, know, I don't think they even had a real. Week, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, in fact. Ooh, spoilers. So yeah. um, they kind of like wander around trying to get figure out like what happened. Like they, they're trying to find somebody who was there but isn't too hurt to like talk to them. And they finally come across a woman named, her name's Alicia. It doesn't really matter what it her doesn't name matter. is. But she they, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But she has a brother who was like blown to shit. Uh, and it, it seems like he might have lost his hearing, which will, I guess, sort of be relevant later, but sort not of. in a major way. Yeah. Like, it'll come up again, but it won't be important. But anyways, she was like, I, and, and she basically indicates to them that she's pretty sure her brother was one of the targets because he's associated with this guy named Dale. Remember last week where there was an ep- where, where a kind of dirty lawyer had his daughter kidnapped by a bad guy and they got her back? Well, the kidnapper went into the wind, I guess, and uh, the lawyer's still pissed. So they pretty much deduce from this conversation with this woman whose brother worked like part-time with the guy that kidnapped the daughter. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> Of course, Yandu. Um, they're, they're like pretty certain that non-angel out Adam Scott has something to do with this explosion. Adam Scott, if you'll remember, is uh, the this, lawyer the and non-angel refers to the fact that he is not Adam Scott from Parks and Rec, who was once a Christmas tree angel on our shared Christmas tree. So just to get everybody back up to speed. I do not have to say, like, it's kind of a weird continuation. You know, like, this is the character that we're going to bring back again. It Maybe it was just that they were all in, like, in the area. Like maybe the, like they they had gotten this actor and he was like still there or something and they wanted to double up on his contract like I, I do, don't know it just I do <laughs> who like cares the about this idea guy? that like there's immediate consequences to like a thing that they did like I, I do, do too. Like it just that. seems like a weird one for it to be like exactly. we've had so many different things that could have come back and instead I feel like it's always so arbitrary yeah yeah instead yeah, it's this like, guy it's never a guy who like has charisma or is interesting like, right. They kill off Yondu, but they keep, like, this Adam Scott motherfucker who isn't even the real Adam Scott. He's not a good actor. (laughs) It doesn't matter. So, but they're basically, like, they talk to this girl. She gets labeled the client, um, but then they, like, don't talk to her for most of the episode, which I actually really enjoyed. Like, I like that they kind of decide that they're going to clean up this mess. And, like, they have the obligatory, this lady is the client, but they also don't, like, try to ham it up and, like, impose yeah. the regular burn notice structure on like we didn't have any mid-episode check-ins unnecessarily with the client where she just like freaks out and they're like don't worry it'll be fine and then yeah, they go back to doing whatever matter. they were doing <laughs> yeah it does not matter but like they have an obligation i guess to the usa network that every episode must have a client so that's alicia and exactly. her brother She's who sometimes there. worked for dale uh, i will say Yandu. this woman alicia is like very forthcoming to these strangers at the hospital one of whom is just injured like <laughs> they seem trustworthy they well and then there's this there's a funny moment right when they introduce themselves to her where she like asks them a question as if they work there she like directs a question to sam because like obviously michael is a patient but she like directs a question to sam about like can i see my brother and sam wearing a very bright hawaiian shirt is like oh no i don't work here <laughs> at what <laughs> How did she assume that he works there? He does not dress I mean, like they a doctor. Were coming up to her authoritatively. Yeah, but he's wearing a bright Hawaiian shirt, and Michael is clearly like on an IV trip. I don't know. This interaction makes no sense on any level. 
It doesn't, but I'm fine with it because it sets up uh, one of my favorite episodes this season, I will have to say. I, I, yeah. I enjoy how this episode unfolds. There were a lot of really fun stuff. Jason Tracy is earning his way back into my heart. Uh, he's gotten some space from his breakup, and I appreciate yeah. that. So anyways, uh, Michael and Fiona. Women Michael are just leaving. not involved in this episode. Well, they did direct it. Yeah, I mean, like, in terms of characters. Yeah, so Michael, who definitely is not supposed to be out of bed yet, and Fiona go to meet up with Adam Scott to get him to stop with the vendetta because innocent people are getting hurt in the crossfire. Uh, Speaking of crossfire, did you know that I had a novel in progress called Crossfire that I started writing in eighth grade? It was set in Washington, D.C. after I took a class trip there, and it was going to be like a YA spy adventure romp set during a teenager's also class trip to uh, Washington, D.C. I should revisit it. It was actually very fun. I did a lot of research while I was in Washington, D.C. of like, like we would go into historical buildings and stuff and I would like take notes of where a sniper could be like seated or like where you might be able to like slip a note that somebody else could pick up later. I, I don't actually know if I have a all child, those notes. <laughs> like, like asking an adult, do you think a sniper could go there? It's like an actual thing. And like the, the the one time that I went to church as like an adolescent and not a full child, it was I was around this age, I think. And I was in I was probably, you know, seventh, eighth grade. And we were visiting my grandparents in New Mexico. And we like we were there for Christmas and we had to go to like midnight mass. And so I was bored as fuck because church is extremely boring, especially Catholic church. And so basically, I spent the entire session like looking around the session of church, you know, how church has yeah, sessions. church sessions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the church session. And I spent the entire time looking around the church and like imagining different ways that people could like breach the church and like come in and stage like a very big like fight. So that's I'm, I'm just saying bur- burn notice was made for me. <laughs> and I'm I mean, delighted yes. to have this podcast. It's, yeah, that's why you have this podcast. It is. That's, but anyways, yeah. I think I should revisit Crossfire. I think there was there's something there. I think it's fun. I like, I like uh, tenacious teen spies. Crossfire to me was that weird sort of not quite board game that that used to be advertised on children's television in the 90s and early 2000s cuz there was a hmm. there was a song that went with it that was just like crossfire and like it's still stuck in my head to this day just to the point where like I can't read the word crossfire I can just hear it in the voice of the guy who sang that song nice well, anyways, Adam Scott declines their invitation to cut it the fuck out. And they're like, all right, well, that's not going to go over well for you. And he's like, fuck off. And they say, OK. So they leave Michael Scott's place and are immediately. Uh, Michael Scott's in... place? Fuck. No, I, <laughs> <So> they... <laughs> I wanted to do that all the time the last time we dealt with Adam Scott. So, like, I am with you. I understand. There's yeah. a character named Michael. There's a character named Adam Scott. It was. It only. It, it took a while, but eventually we got there. That's what she said. Hey, <laughs> see what I got. See what I did there. Yeah, because it was Michael Scott. Yeah, I got it. It's like that's not a bad. Said. That's what she said. Joke either. Yeah, I've heard better. You know. Well, of course that's you have because it's been in the public consciousness for a decade my okay, improvisational michael scott joke whatever whatever so they leave adam scott's house and then vaughn walks up to them and we learn that of course management covered up the mess with barrett last week and vaughn's all like yeah we should we we sure would have loved to know why he wanted that bible it's really too bad that you didn't find out what happened with that and michael's like yeah mood and they kind of just sort of do the kermit nod at each other where vaughn definitely knows michael knows something and michael definitely does not give a shit and 
And Va- Vaughn's basically like, yeah, so I'm leaving Miami. Someone else will be in touch when the dust settles because apparently management still needs Michael, despite the fact that Michael has never been cooperative, always is working a second thing. And I genuinely don't think that they've actually gotten anything productive out of him. Like the one thing that Michael helped them with is getting them to like alerting him to the fact that Barrett was the Warren thing guy. So maybe he has done something, but I feel like every I mean, single yeah. time management has this called upon him, like he has fucked it up for them. Yeah. Well, I guess they like, did get Barrett, but then also they still need Michael. Like Michael's not off the hook for literally taking down like I mean, the he's big bad war for profit like, guy. He's never going to be off the hook. They like, he's an asset. They're going to use him when they need him. Well, it's, Sucks for him, but luckily yeah, Michael knows what the what the they. So even though the Bible and like all of the stuff was stolen last week, at least all of the information is now together. So if they can track down who has the briefcase full of the Bible and all of the like decoded names yeah. and stuff, the Bible like, doesn't matter anymore. No, it does because it it decodes like without the two things being together, they can't. Decode well, yeah, but they the are list. together. Like the Bible's gonna get decoded and then like. Yeah, I suppose the Bible still matters for this episode. Yeah, the Bible, like, because at first I forgot that the Bible got put into the briefcase. I thought thought they were still separate, like the documents and the Bible. Yeah, no, but together. I remember that, but they definitely are together because, like, presumably, manage or uh, Barrett has had the like undecoded list of shit for a while, and I'm sure he sent it to crypto, you know, whatever's. But without the key, you straight up can't decode it. And so, like, the Bible is the key, and now the two pieces are together. So as long as whoever has it can get somebody to decode it, which we we'll learn more about later on in the episode. Um, they like the pieces are together. Now they just need somebody to kind of sort through it. So someone has all the pieces and they just need to go hunt that person down. Speaking of uh, Fee and Michael head back to Maddie's and Fee thinks Sam may have a lead on who took the briefcase. One of Barrett's former security guys, whose name is Mark Sweeney. And then Michael, who is like just sort of like wincing, you know, cause he's in like a lot of pain. We have to remember that Michael's in a lot of pain for the entirety of the episode remarks that Sweeney doesn't sound like a quote, super villains, you know, cool name. <laughs> and he delivers it. So like, sadly, he just yeah it's such a weird little thing and he like he even kind of like fucks up the line but i don't think i think it's a part of the delivery of like michael weston realizes that he doesn't know what he's saying so he's like it's not a super villain's uh cool guy name yeah (laughs) which is very cute and also confusing to me personally because there is a character on the good wife named sweeney his last name is sweeney and he is a very bad guy um, yeah, it is kind of a weird. Also, Sweeney like, Todd is like a like famous musical bad guy. Yeah, like it super is villain, weird. cool guy name. Sweeney is sort of par for the course. Exactly, it's this weird. I guess it's not masculine enough, and like Maybe. we know how this show and Jason Tracy feel about masculinity. <laughs> I guess that's true. It's like a funny line, but it feels very detached from like reality. But I enjoyed the performance. It was very cute. Um, I like when Michael Weston kind of like deflates mid sentence. I will say this episode just has some decent jokes in it, but like this is the first Jason Tracy episode in a while that is like explicitly not a comedy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack about this episode. So we're about to get 
to what we need to unpack. So let's just walk walk right over there to the next thing, which is that Sam, uh, in addition to identifying Mark Sweeney, who probably has the briefcase, he has also possibly identified the bomber that Adam Scott hired to like take out all of the people who were a part of his daughter's kidnapping. So Michael, still wincing, heads into uh, this possible bomber's place, and Sam is a lookout. This dude, Dennis, is, quote, a trust fund psycho who blows up drug dens and kills homeless people. And Sam remarks, there's probably a manifesto somewhere. And this is basically, a weird character. Anyway, gone. I'm interested in this character. I it's it's the kind of character that usually on shows like this, I would enjoy because he adds a little sort of like flair and chaos. You know, he's a serial killer. Like, basically, he he got off, but he is essentially a serial killer of people in, like, the lower classes from him. The weird thing about this character is that his motivation and his personality persona don't match up. On one hand, he's supposed to be this weird sort of, like, seven, like, righteous serial killer guy who's like trying to clean up trash or whatever but like Mm -hmm. everything about like his look and his performance is like almost 100% intentionally doing Patrick Bateman from American Psycho like isn't that like the thing isn't that like what he's doing? He's like, he's a delusional narcissist who was born into money and has an inherent like distrust of people below him in station. And like, of course, it's not rational. But it's, but, but no, the, but like, the, it's not about righteousness. The thing is that like in this episode, Dennis is killing criminals and stuff and he like, he's trying to wipe out trash. There's like a weird moralistic component. And like mm-hmm. he has, he's written a manifesto and he's doing all this sorts of stuff. Like that's a different kind of serial killer than like the American Psycho serial killer, who is like because American Psycho. Well, I mean, I've never seen it. Okay, American Psycho is an interesting cultural product um, because, and I was I was reading a thing about this the other day. Um, the book is written by Brett Easton Ellis, who is a monster, a horrible person. Fuck him. He's awful. And, like, it's this weird, edgy manifesto. It's basically Joker. It's terrible. Oh, it's Brett Easton Ellis. Got it. Yeah, it's got Brett it, got Easton. It. But it was directed, like this episode, by a woman whose name is escaping me. I don't know. But Mary like, Heron. Mary, yes. And she, like, takes this book, which is just this weird, noxious bit of edgelord nonsense, and then makes it about, like... like the 80s and like wall street psychopaths and like how about how like wealth and like like class and like the 80s sort of aesthetic led to this sort of psychopath aesthetic and like it becomes this interesting sort of commentary on like the 80s and masculinity and all this stuff and it's like again almost a comedy it's an interesting movie I like it. The thing is that, like, it doesn't really vibe with the character, like, his motivation. Like, normally, like, a guy like this is, like, some weird, unwashed Rorschach dude. Like. I mean, he's not unwashed. He wears, like, de- he like no, he seems very. No, that's what I'm saying. Eye. That's what I'm saying is he looks like Patrick Bateman, but acts like a weird, unwashed Rorschach character. 
And, like, <laughs> those two things don't jive. Like I don't know. I just kind of took it as, like, a semi-sort of attractive, sort of wild-eyed narcissist rich boy who's yeah, looking like, for a thing to feel, like, powerful for because he already has the power that comes that's with what I'm saying, whiteness that he and maleness need, and money. He doesn't need to feel powerful because he's got money. Like... Well, what I'm saying is he he needs some he needs to ch- he's one of those people who needs to chase something new. Like there's there's people who he like he doesn't obviously understand privilege, but he understands it enough to know he wants something more. He wants to be even more powerful. So he has picked a secondary thing. Like the first thing is I'm richer than everyone, so I am inherently better. But now I have a I have a job to do. Like Except what else is like, he gonna do? With this again, time? like he's bored. His, he, he's none he's of the bored things he that he thing. talks about. He doesn't seem like a bored guy who picked a thing. He seems like a zealot, like a true believer. Like I think that that, that comes second, though. Like, I, I don't think that no, anyone I don't think it does. in his like, position none... starts like that. Well, And he's been killing. Like... You also have to remember he's been killing for a while. Like, we get yeah, to him but it's like... in media res. Exactly. But he's been killing for a while. But, like, the people that he's killing are, like, again, he's got, like, a whole man. He probably does have a manifesto. Like, he is this weird sort of like true believer character like it's just it's a weird mishmash of two ideas that are similar but also really different and like they don't connect like you can't put them together because like they're fundamentally different kind of psychologies and so this character makes no sense to me well i don't know if anybody else could kill homeless people you know what i mean like that that like the are you saying that you wished he would have either stuck to bad guys or homeless people not both because like the psychology well, no. of like wanting to kill bad guys and wanting to kill just like, I mean, people like, who you consider lesser than you are different I mean like serial killers kill homeless people because it's a crime of opportunity like homeless people are easy to kill well but he's saying that he's not killing them out of a crime of opportunity he's killing them because he's killing anyone who he feels is lesser than and like you know doesn't deserve the you know yeah the evolutionary dar you know social darwinism like he's 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 darwin's tool see like he's he says that a little bit but again it seems to be more moralistic like again it's weird it's not like, well, again, that's a moralistic that stance. Says, like, it's a shitty moralistic stance, but it's that, yeah. that definitely is an ideology. That's a yeah, moral ideology. Exactly. exactly. He has an ideology, and, like, I feel like the ideology doesn't fit with the aesthetic. Like, Patrick Bateman doesn't kill guys because, like, and he doesn't just, just kill homeless people. Like, he kills, like, he kills because he just wants to kill. Because, like, yeah, he likes the power of killing, but it's not, like... It, it doesn't matter who he kills, whereas, like, it very much matters to this guy who he kills. So what would you have preferred from him? Pick a side. Like, pick one. Either he's Patrick Bateman or he's, like, the guy from Seven. Like, he can't, like, be both because that doesn't make sense. So are you saying that if they gave him a different look, it would be better? Because I'm trying to understand. Because I feel like I, I didn't have any problems with this guy. He's, like, a, you know, a straightforward, I think it's the, I think it's psycho. the look. Because, like... Again, but, like, he's not doing, like, rich psychos don't have weird manifestos. Like, that's not. Why not? Because they, they're they weird amoral psychopaths. Like, that's the thing. There's a the difference I, I, between, I'm, like, what? an amoral psychopath and, like, a psychopath that has a moral philosophy that is awful. Like, right, again, but I don't think like that they're necessarily. Zealot. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I don't think that you can you can't be both like a rich guy who thinks you're better than everyone and also a serial killer who kills people he thinks he's better than. 
maybe, but this script doesn't like pull it off. Like it's not good well, at connecting right. I mean, those ideas. <laughs> you have to remember, like, it's, this is a burn notice episode. I know, Thematic, but like, like stability has never been their strength. But I didn't. But I don't think I thing. have. It'd as be much one of a thing problem. if it felt like he was trying to connect those ideas, but it literally just seems like they dressed him up like Patrick Bateman because they thought it would be cool to do Patrick Bateman, but then like gave him a motivation that doesn't fit with Patrick Bateman. So it just seems like they were doing it to do a Patrick Bateman riff and not like but here's, because here's they thought my thing, it through. I don't think it would have made sense for him to look any different if his whole thing is I'm killing people who I feel like are lesser than me. Because he has to look like someone who he believes is better than. And that's a well-dressed, I mean, well, you know, clean-cut white like guy. Guys who do that, like, oftentimes, like, don't look like that. Like, But, but it doesn't but, need to be every time. This guy happens to, like, dress the part. Like, he thinks he's morally better because he's well-dressed. I don't think And then I, uses that to kill people. He's a Republican. Republicans look down on people with, you know, baggy clothes and ripped jeans and blah, blah, blah. And they think that's that it the makes thing, them better he's people like a weird, to be well-dressed. He's not like a business Republican. He's like a he's like a weird sort of QAnon Republican. And, like, QAnon people don't look like business people. Like, uh, some of them do. Some of them have been elected to uh, I mean, that's fair. elected positions. But, like, there's, like, this weird <laughs> it's, sort it's of... It's a literal hell that we're living in. I mean, yes. Like, it just it doesn't quite work for me. And it feels like they're putting together two ideas that don't quite go together because they're doing a generic serial killer, but they're not doing a generic serial killer. They're doing like two specific serial killer archetypes and trying to put them together in a way that I just don't think works. I think you may also be like projecting uh, Patrick Bateman because he's like a... Because like no, he's he's a white, what else do white well dressed serial killers look like? You know what I mean? Like he's there I was mean, a shooting recently, and like it was like yeah, the suspect's a twenty to thirty year old white man. I'm like, of course it is. You don't have to tell us that. We know who the fucking shooter is. Well, yeah, so, like, but he's like just, there's a difference he's just, like every like, bad guy. A white like a white man serial killer and like hair slicked back like. Kind of. I feel like a know. lot of those serial killers kind of look like that. Like even. I don't um, think. No, I feel like a lot of serial killers are like weird, unkempt guys. Ted Bundy Ted was well dressed, and like that. Like, his yeah, whole Ted thing is he was well dressed, like, but he's not like wearing like a suit, and like he's not like a trust fund guy. Like. Sure, but I'm well, just saying, like, like he's cl- he's a clean cut white guy. I think you might be like, I'm not saying you're wrong that they 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 aren't like pulling from that aesthetic, but I don't think like the aesthetic versus moral okay. But also, you haven't seen the his... movie that I'm talking about, right? But your main concern seems to be that you don't like that they're doing a look with him that you don't think reflects in the style of serial killer that he is. I mean, like, I'm just not. I do I'm not the performance too. The cognitive but it's like, dissonance. Yeah, it's. I don't know. It just didn't work for me like it could have because it seems like they're trying to mash two things together. Anyway, I've said that a bunch of times. It's fine. Also, I at this point, I would be remiss if I didn't point out because it's become a weird part of my life now that I got yelled at because I was talking too much about The Wire. <laughs> Because of that one episode where I kept saying that this one guy was like Ziggy from The Wire. So I do have to point out that Dennis is played by Ziggy from The Wire. (laughs) (laughs) There's no such thing as The Wire, Chris. What are you talking about? Anyways, to get back to Dennis briefly. So Michael is like scoping out the guy's place 
and is looking through the window and sees some suspicious white powder that he wants to get. Like, basically, their whole thing with this is, like, they just want to turn this dude over to the police so they don't have to deal with it. Like, they don't actually expect to go for full burn notice on this dude because, you know, they've got this other Bible thing to deal with. So even, like, Sam and Fee and everyone are like, yeah, this isn't our main priority. Let's just get some stuff for the cops and, like, turn him over. That's all we need to do. So Michael sees some white powder and starts to, like, try and sort of reach into the house and, like, break through the window in a kind of confusing spy tip that we'll get to later. But um, he he reaches in to hear he's about to do that. But unfortunately, the guy gets home. You know, as always in burn notice, the guy comes home right at the wrong moment. So Sam gives Michael the heads up. But unfortunately, because Michael is still injured, he can't escape. He actually, like, is physically incapable of escaping, even with the warning. And, of course, uh, Patrick Bateman slash Dennis, uh, the menace, catches him. And so Michael has to (laughs) Michael has to do some quick thinking and essentially becomes like a a lowly wannabe acolyte. And the transition is very fun. And we see it a couple of times throughout this episode in places where I will definitely call it out. But he basically uh, becomes Gordon Levin. Uh, not to be confused with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a fellow clean-cut white guy who also hates the poor. Um, He, like, kind of goes with a, please teach me your ways, I'm your biggest fan, to kind of, like, play to this dude's ego so he won't kill him. And that part works, but he doesn't quite ingratiate himself enough for Dennis to be like, yeah, sure, I'll show you where the bombs are. But he does say ominously, like, if you're a fan, like, keep an eye out. There's more to come for you to be a fan of. So he's basically like, there will be more bombs, but also, no, I'm not looking for interns at this time, and then kicks Michael out. But luckily, Michael is alive, and uh, that's... That's important because we like him. That Michael's He's our alive. protagonist. He is our protagonist <laughs> yeah. after all. It's an important plot point that should not be missed that Michael <laughs> Weston is alive. He sure is. So back at Madeline's house, Madeline and Fiona lecture Michael about working and refusing his painkillers, which he has been refusing because he needs to stay sharp now that this Dennis thing has gotten a little more involved. Uh, Fiona demands to know why he didn't run when Dennis got home. And instead of admitting he was literally too weak to escape, he claims that it was a judgment call, which I really liked. And I wish they had come back to again because like... I think this would have been a really interesting Michael Weston like character arc in that yeah. like his sort of pride gets him hurt. Unfortunately, like while he does get hurt a couple more times as a result of his injuries not being able to heal before he throws himself back into the field like comes up, it doesn't really come up again that he has to sort of reckon with his team about like the fact that he is physically incapable of doing some of the things he used to do. Uh, because I, I briefly forgot at this moment that we were watching Burn Notice, a show that can't have Michael Weston be down for long. But I think it would have been interesting if he had to sort of admit weakness and let someone else help him. Like the, the ultimate conclusion conclusion of this episode I, I I liked fine but I feel like this moment is really important that he lies to fee to save his pride and I feel like that's something that should come up again I feel like that's something that could have been brought around and like force Michael to accept help because you know his whole stoic lone wolf shit can't get him out of it forever and like we've had whispers of this before but i feel like this is the most interesting setup that they've given us for it like the michael lone wolf shit is always going to get him hurt but unfortunately does not come back so i was initially very excited about this moment because i thought it was really interesting on a character level but then you know they drop it immediately because no michael weston is definitely strong enough everything is fine yeah no i agree so 
It's annoying. Um, so then Michael and Fiona have a very sweet moment together. Um, and then Fiona has to head out because she's got a lead on Sweeney. And Michael suggests that she takes Jesse as backup. And he's basically like, Jesse won't be as mad at you as he is at the rest of us. So if maybe you can get him back on side, if you guys do a little job together. And she's like, okay. So Fee unpacks her apparently new apartment. We learned earlier, like maybe even in the cold open or right afterwards that she's moving and it's unclear why. So I guess I'm assuming that maybe they lost the old location. Because this is, like this is the second half like of the season. Or something. They're vague about it on purpose. They're like, oh no, she's yeah. just moving for some reason. <laughs> and it also does like notably happen after the mid season finale. So like this is, we're in the, the second half of the season. It's been a couple of months. So maybe in that time they like lost the location or something. Yeah, I don't know. It's certainly. very confusing. Um, but in any case, Fiona is unpacking her, you know, pristine new apartment and is greeted is is greeted by Jesse, who knocks on the door and he's all sour faced. And then she tries to sort of needle him into being friends again. And he pouts some more. And then she's like, all right, well, we're going to this car park to go after Sweeney's car. And our cover is we're married. And he's like, our marriage is on the rocks, all dramatic. And it's very, it's very funny. Jesse pouting really like aggressively. I find extremely endearing. Yeah, I know. For some it was reason. really good. I like that. And I think Fee also found it kind of endearing because, like, at least he's having a little bit of fun with his pouting instead of just being a little shithead. Yeah. He's not, like, refusing to do anything. He's just like, yeah, but we're going to do it like this. <laughs> yeah, but I'm going to be a little bit of a pill. And what I also liked is the fact that their marriage is on the rocks then plays into their cover at the car park. So they're basically trying to scam, like, the security guard at this uh, parking structure to let them into the car. And the cover is that Fee left her sunglasses in his buddy's car and uh his he's like and i don't know why she was in the car certainly not long enough to lose her sunglasses but okay and so then they have this like big blow up about like you know why were you in her car like i it's fine he was just giving me a ride like it's this whole back and forth thing um they create this and- whole narrative it's really good it's very fun. I really, I'm glad that, you know, even though Jesse's mad at her, we're getting more Jesse Fee action because I think they have really, really fun scene chemistry. Like we've seen Michael and Fee do fake fights and it's always like slower and more dramatic because like usually Fiona's kind of like a hot spark and Michael's always trying to like get her to calm down. And even when he yells, he has like a very slow yell. Have you noticed that? The Jeffrey Donovan, the way that he like raises his voice is still very sort of measured in tone. Yeah. And he's like, he elongates his words. Like it's more That's of a true. Dr. Does. Cox kind of yell. But when Jesse and Fee fight, it's two firecrackers going after each other. So like they're they're much more quippy and like fast paced and back and forth. They burn ho- much hotter very quickly. And I just, I find it delightful. I like all of the different fake over the top fights that we get from this show when they're, you know, trying to get into a place. Uh, then Jesse kind of like sort of bribes the guy but he does it in a way that it makes it seem like jesse doesn't realize that what he's doing is bribing he thinks there's just like a standard price for you know getting into this stuff oh the city charges so much and at this point the guard's like yeah sure i'll take this idiot's 300 bucks so they get to go search the car um and what they find in the car is a university of miami parking slip the day after the barrett deal so they think that maybe he took the stuff in the briefcase to somebody at the university to decode it and so they find this just in time because the guard comes up to them and he's like hey have you found the sunglasses yet and so fiona pulls them out from under a car seat and jesse goes what were you doing that got those sunglasses under the car seat? And then they start arguing again and like leave the car. It's good. It's a good little like three scenes kind of like, you know, there's a start, middle and end. It's very nice. Again, I like 
Jason Tracy's funny, and I he think, is. Like, and I found this scene. That's I found this a lot more funny than the other one. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, like his, that's kind of his a thing. worser instincts when he's like, "This is going to be a funny episode." You know what I've discovered is that I think that that's how a lot of funny people end up. Like, I think I'm kind of similar to that, where I'm funnier when you don't expect a funny thing to happen, versus when I'm like explicitly trying to do like a comedy thing. Like, I don't think I would be good at stand up, but I think I would be good at like live storytelling shows because those often are funny, but the expectation is truth and a good story rather than jokes. Nobody's going there expecting to be like rolling on the floor. So if I am funny during another kind of performance, that's just like a fun bonus and everyone's into it. But if, you know, I was doing stand up, I feel like it would be a lot harder because like stand up audiences are traditionally really hard to please because like they go expecting to laugh. And if you don't get them the way that they expect to be like, performed to then it can be really brutal and i i found that in a lot of writers who have been told like i have a student um right now who i i'm teaching who uh he he's starting to do a a comedy script for the first time because people had been telling him he was very funny in his other scripts and he's a great writer and i his comedy is very funny but i can i've been watching him in, in reaction to like notes that i give him where i'm like this needs to be punched up this joke needs to be funnier this is way too long and i can see him kind of getting frustrated because because he's realizing that like doing a full comedy is a lot harder to pull off than having a funny joke in the middle of a different kind of scene. And it's just been oh, interesting definitely. to sort of watch that because I, I feel the same way a lot of times when I say, oh, I'm writing a comedy. Well, then all of a sudden, like the stakes are much higher and it gets much harder to do because to write a comedy versus to write a funny scene are two very different skill sets, I think. So I, oh, yeah, I, totally. it's I relate why... to Jason Tracy in this way. <laughs> Is what I'm saying. It's why Aaron Sorkin can write television shows that are often very funny, but when he has to write a television show about an SNL type show, like that show that they're making is painfully unfunny. I've like, heard that. Yeah, I've never watched that show, but I've heard that about it. And then we go back to the Dennis plot. So Michael, as acolyte Gordon, decides to visit his grandmaster serial killer Dennis again, and once again asks for an internship. And in exchange, Dennis can have some bomb building materials that Michael Gordon got when he searched how to make bombs on the internet. So whatever items he has procured seem interesting enough to Dennis to get him to like come outside and like test them in the tr- back of like Michael's trunk so that Sam can slip in and search the apartment for real this time. And uh, Michael starts to get Dennis talking to kind of keep him busy while they're doing this chemical exchange. And he learns, as you might expect, that Dennis considers uh, the collateral damage of his bombings of scum as casualties of war. You know, just in case you didn't realize that Dennis was a bad guy, he doesn't care that two innocent people uh, died at his last bomb site and that a bunch of other people were injured. I mean, he he doesn't think that innocent people are scum. He thinks they're casualties. No, 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 I, but while he's trying to kill scum, if he happens to kill innocents, yeah. they are just casualties of war. That's all that I exactly, mean Exactly, because, sense. like, the, the righteousness of his mission overall is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what we also learn is that uh, it kind of seems like it was a little bit of an accident that some of those people died uh, who actually did end up dying in that situation because the way that he, like, arms his bombs like the the specific way that he triggers them is a little faulty like he's actually not as smart as he thinks he is and any stray radio signal could potentially set off any of the bombs that he set up anywhere around Miami and that is when Dr. Finley calls so Michael walks away to take a call from Dr. Finley uh you know about his very bad injuries that he's shown off I think 
originally establishing his alias, he said that he tried to like take out a drug dealer, but the drug dealer shot him, and that's why he has a bullet wound in his shoulder. Yeah. But anyway, so he he talks to Dr. Finley, and Dr. Finley has discovered that this dude has made five bombs, and it kind of seems like he's already placed them everywhere around Miami. So now yeah. they're... It so, seems like he's placed them because he has like layouts for all of these bombs, and on the layout, he's written the word delivered. Mm-hmm. Just it's so important to get your paperwork. He delivered them. <laughs> it's important to know your paperwork. And then there's also a date and time on each of them. So Sam's like, one of them is going to go off later today. Like, we got to get to that one. And Michael's like, actually, we got to get to all of them because this dude wires them really shittily. So even if we can stop the one that's scheduled to go off, the other ones might go off without our say or without his say. So, like, we need to find the locations of all of them at once. We can't take this one at a time. Um, and then, like, he hangs up the phone. And then there's this really interesting shot that we don't usually get when Michael Weston is like deep cover aliasing where we see Michael get off the phone as Michael turn around to walk back to Dennis and then he like sort of anamorphs into his Gordon cover identity and it's very mesmerizing to watch because we don't usually get to like see him switch back and forth we sometimes get to see him like drop the alias and become Michael Weston again but this is one of the first times that we've actually watched Michael become the alias and so he like he kind of shakes himself and then he slumps and then he like bugs his eyes out because that's sort of Gordon's thing is he's sort of like wide eyed and innocent, but like loves the righteousness and like, you know, starts to like breathe a little different. I don't know. It's just it was very interesting no, to literally no. watch him. This is a good episode for Jeffrey Donovan. Like Jeffrey it's Donovan such a good episode is legitimately Donovan. creepy in this episode. This is the thing is that like talking about my complaints with like Dennis is that Jeffrey Donovan is playing the type perfectly. The acolyte of the psycho. Yeah, but even just like the psycho, the kind of psycho. Jeffrey Donovan is doing a much better job at playing this kind of ser- zealot serial killer than, like, Ziggy from The Wire is. I mean, even in the initial scene, though, like, because he's wearing his classic, like, you know, blue Oxford shirt and khakis. So, like, he's also well-dressed, and he references the way that he is dressed to ingratiate himself with Dennis. I mean, yeah, but, like, he's, again, he's this weird sort of, like, zealot. And, like, he's, like, well-dressed, but he's not, like trust fund wall street rich like but yeah like jeffrey donovan is like legit creepy in this episode yeah he and he and he also has some really great emotional moments like the moment with his mom uh the walk and talk with his mom there's a scene with the end with his mom that like actually had me tearing up because it was like it was just so well paced it's funny how like the acting gets better when we've got a female director i don't know i just noticed that uh anyways so michael gets off his phone call and it's very cool but then dennis is basically like you got ripped off these are not chemicals like this is bullshit how dare you trick me and then like leaves and michael's like okay bye so then michael goes back to confront adam scott to learn where the other bombs are now that they know that there are multiples that are already set and that they could go off at any moment and you know he tries to once again to use like the casualties of war to guilt him into talking and adam scott keeps trying to be all lawyery like that evidence that you're showing me as proof that there are more bombs is illegally obtained and like i'm admitting nothing but if some individual happened to and michael's like i don't give a fuck about any of that where are the bombs, Adam Scott? So Adam Scott gives him the next one. And then Michael also is like, oh, by the way, by the end of this, you're going to confess. And Adam Scott's like, why would anyone confess? There's a Fifth Amendment. And Michael's like, mm-hmm, sure thing. And he kind of gives a little smirk, like, you know, your boy's got something up his sleeve to make sure that this guy doesn't get out of this scot-free any more than uh, in Dennis will. Um, and I liked that. And I also like how this ends up resolving itself. Yeah. 
I'll say really quickly about Adam Scott. Sure. The weird thing about Adam Scott is in the last episode that he was in, when he was the client, everyone was acting like he was scum. And then, like, he was basically a decent guy. Like, he was, like, a guy with a job. But, like, I guess because he was the client, like, he couldn't be, like, that scummy. Nothing about him seemed particularly scummy. And now today, he's, like, mustache-twirlingly evil. I think maybe what must have happened is that, like, in the world of the show is that they think he's scummy and scum because he represents scum and like he he gets off a lot of the clients that Michael Weston and co probably are trying to get into jail so like they just don't like that about him but uh and also last week he had a little bit going for him because his daughter was literally missing so like there's an element of right well we do kind of feel bad for this guy because his main focus last week was I got to get my daughter back. But now I think the in, the intent is that this is sort of a return to normal form for him. So had we met Adam Scott prior to his daughter being kidnapped, this would be the Adam Scott we would be dealing with. The only reason we got a slightly more like, you know, relatable I guy wish we could last have, like, week seen is because his daughter was gone. Adam Scott last week then. There's this weird thing where it seemed like they were being mean to this guy without a lot of evidence. And then, like, now there's evidence, but it's like... I think we were just supposed to also agree that uh, defense attorneys are scum. I think it's sort of just like a... We're supposed to just know that. Yeah, and it's like... Anyone who defends criminals is bad. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just sort of like... I don't know. I think you and I may have a slightly more nuanced understanding of the legal system and also the criminal justice system, and that's why we weren't immediately like, oh, yeah, fuck this defense attorney. It's also kind of not great storytelling because it's this, it's never good when, like, you have other characters say that this person has a trait. I remember Mm -hmm. TV Tropes used to call this informed attributes. Mm -hmm. It's a a classic tell-don't-show sort of Exactly. They never showed. And now suddenly we're showing, but it's, like, so much later it, it just it's weird mm-hmm. yeah it does it does kind of come in reverse of how character development is usually displayed um yeah. but anyways he he has the next location but not all of them yet and so michael and sam go to scope out the next location and they they just they realize that it's they realize either now or a little bit later but it this is the brother and sister that they met at the hospital this is alicia allegedly the client and her now deaf brother Wade, I think is his name. And so they're trying to figure out how to get inside because like they're pretty sure the bombs have all already been put into place. So they have to, but there's armed guards outside. So they're like, well, fuck, how do we get past the armed guards to save these armed guards from the bomb that's definitely somewhere in that house? And then they get a call uh, and it's Dennis. Dennis is calling Michael, not importantly his his little acolyte gordon but he's calling a michael weston and so michael weston like kind of deepens his voice and he's like yes hello i'm michael weston who you have not met yet what's up dennis and dennis like drops fiona's name in this conversation and it's basically like i learned that somebody called you to send you after me some guy named adam scott who hired me originally tried to call me off and say oh actually the the people who kidnapped my daughter they're fine they should go free and that's not okay and then the camera on dennis's of the conversation sort of pulls out and he has fucking murdered Adam Scott and like the guy who was his security guy at the house and he's like I am not gonna stop going after these scum just because he decided he's you know got cold feet and also I'm coming for you and Fiona next because no one is gonna stop me from my cause and I was actually kind of like impressed by this turn of events that he just straight up fucking kills the guy I mean Adam Scott was right he didn't confess it's true but Michael's, Michael Weston was also right in that 
something was coming for him. But yeah, I thought that it was like that. That shocked me. That surprised me that like he just fucking killed Adam Scott and is like, yeah, I'm doubling down on this. I don't know. I like the erraticness of this guy. Uh, it worked for me. And I was surprised. I was genuinely surprised that Adam I Scott died. I was genuinely surprised too. It does uh, make it weirder as to why they brought on Adam Scott for another episode. Like, yeah, it it, the, it seems like we definitely don't need that. <laughs> like, it. No. I mean, I guess the only thing is that the way that they figure out who is in charge of, at the very least, sending a mad bomber after people is because they know who is already who is mad at Wade, and otherwise they would yeah. have had to spend some time like investigating, like who is. Yondu and why is somebody mad enough to take out his crew so I think maybe it was just a shorthand sort of thing for we're gonna do a lot in this episode we don't have time to also figure out like the motive for the initial attack so we need to just have that locked down it almost seems like it would be it would just be neater if it was just like an independent serial killer episode because like it's very weird that Adam Scott sent a serial killer after these guys well, and I think the implication like, is that he might have been his lawyer. Like, that's no, how Adam Scott usually gets pe- Yeah, exactly. So, no, like, but, that's- like, surely, like, Adam Scott has, like, guys that he knows that do hits. And Maybe like, he thinks that this guy is a zealot zealots. enough to, like, not turn him in. And he's like, I've seen you work, and you're already off, you know, scot-free. It just seems hey. like, a, it's like a bad choice. Like, he knows a lot of awful guys. Like, it seems like... There are other different awful guys who he could have hired. I don't know. It just seems like that the the fact that it's a weird serial killer is sort of shoehorned into it. Again, there's a lot of things going on in this episode. And I don't think they all quite gel. No, I think it's an exciting and fun episode, one that I really enjoyed. Uh, but definitely, it was I a bit too. of a thematic mess. Like there was, yeah, and not, there there isn't. They're trying to do too many things, and like on and you know. A plot level, it's fun. Like, just, like, on a this-is-what's-happening-next kind of level. Like, I'm enjoying everything that's happening. But I I don't think that it's particularly groundbreaking. Yeah, it's, like, again, it's not good at synthesizing all of these things. Right. Yeah, like, it's a, it's a perfectly serviceable sort of action episode, which I like. I always like the more action-packed Burn Notice episodes where we just, like, have the team forced to constantly improvise as different things happen around them and, like, getting True. to watch all of the different pieces come together. Like, it's very exciting to watch, but if you take a step back for a second, you're like, yeah, some of these things don't make sense. And it's not in the classic Burn Notice, like, plot hole way. I don't think any of these things are necessarily plot holes. They're just weird no, no, no. choices it's... that don't quite thematically jive. No, exactly. It's all just sort of stuff that's like put together awkwardly. Like it's not, there's not like a fun sort of genre collision. It's a weird sort of genre clash. Yeah. It's like a sophomore in college's essay. They're definitely better at writing. And like on the surface, it's like, oh, this is actually pretty coherent. But then if you actually interrogate the arguments and the thesis put, put forth, you're like, hang on, wait, no, I think you're still... You still got a little bit to learn, kid. Yeah, kind exactly. That's a decent analogy, actually. Yeah, that's good. So anyways, now that we know that Dennis is on the hunt for Michael Weston and Fiona Glenan, as well as all of these other people that they have no idea where they are, they got to hurry. So since the next target is that nice lady who's technically our client uh, and her brother, they can't abandon their current post in order to go like chase after Dennis. So Michael picks some roses from a nearby rose bush and wraps them in paper from the garbage so he and Sam can get close enough to the 
guards outside to pull their guns. Basically, they just hold giant bouquets in front of their faces until they get close enough to the guards to like pull a gun on them without them being able to fight back. And there's this kind of funny moment where like they kind of hand the bouquets to the two guards to like kind of busy their hands and then one of the guards like throws his bouquet to the side and is like kind of mad that they pulled this on them and Sam's like hey pick that up I worked hard on that bouquet and the guy like yeah, does really pick it up I don't know it's not, I like that. when Sam like lives in his bit like Sam is somebody who really commits to the bit like Michael Weston doesn't commit to bits if it's not necessary to like finish the job but I think that Sam like he enjoys the drama a little bit. Like, Michael Weston he won't let him enjoy it. Does. And so I always like when Sam's around. Yeah. So anyways, we go inside and we meet up with Alicia for the first time since the beginning of the episode. And they realize that the bomb was delivered in a new flat screen that was delivered the day before. And um, they just sort of didn't question it because the delivery was like, oh, yeah, your brother ordered it. And they're like, that seems like him. He seems like kind of a knucklehead. And at first it, they're talking about him like he's dead. But then he comes in mid-scene when they have revealed that the flat screen is like fucking wired to the brim with C4 and there's like a little bit of a showdown because the brother comes in and is very confused by what's happening and why all these guys with guns are in his house who he doesn't know and when Michael tries to talk him down it doesn't work because the guy is legally deaf now which we if you'll remember learned at the beginning of the episode but this is over pretty quickly because his sister basically goes over and is like we're fine louder yeah exactly like there's no bearing on the plot like nothing happens as a result of him being deaf there's just like a slightly more tension in the scene than there might have otherwise been honestly it doesn't matter matter if the dude is there or not i don't know yeah also i do believe they think that the dead guy ordered the the white screen yes they said that dale ordered it and like oh see i think i i was confused because dale and wade sound similar and i don't care about either of them (laughs) so like i think i assumed they were talking about the brother but then the brother comes in and i was like well wait then why didn't he say that the tv wasn't his that makes sense thank you for clearing that up because i definitely missed that but yeah somebody ordered the tv they didn't question it the tv's got a bunch of bombs in it and so now they all have to work together to um not only make sure that they don't die but also figure out a way to like triangulate the dude's signal so that they can catch him so they uh so they they start to work on that and we transition back over to the fee and jesse plot who are at the college the university of miami still trying to track down sweeney when a nervous looking geek makes a break for it so jesse chases him for a while gets the name of the next person justin Walsh, a defense contractor slash engineer when the nervous looking guy like bolts because they're like talking to a person who works at the university and like he the kid gets nervous and runs and he's just like okay we've got it thank you <laughs> it's really yeah nice. i think she even introduces him herself and jesse as like like no maybe that's next episode there's a couple of great fee and jesse moments over the next two weeks yeah where fee's like oh i'm the muscle he's like my sidekick that's next week like okay yeah that's so the week. but i i that's wait. kind of fee's energy like i yeah, think the way that she's energy. trying to yeah, because she's, like, trying to get uh, Jesse back into the fold, but she knows that what's not going to work is, like, sweet-talking him. So she's like, I'm just going to treat you like I've always treated you, which is like a puppy. Like, I'm not going to I'm not gonna go out of my way to butter you up. Like, you know what I did. I know what I did. And you need to get over it. So go fetch. And I like that. I think that works better. But anyway, so they, so they get the net. Basically, they get the next lead. So now they learn that the guy with the briefcase has met up with like a defense contractor slash like crypto person 
And so they're like, cool, we have the next step. And that is when Fee gets a call from Michael, who fills her in on their adventures and the new plan as Sam and the deaf dude load a duct taped garbage bagged flat screen into a pool. So basically, like while Michael is on the phone with Fee in the background of Michael's scene, they're like wrestling the bomb filled TV into a pool right behind him. And it's kind of like a fun little layered scene. And the plan is fairly simple. Because they know how the guy detonates the bombs with like a cell phone signal, they're going to let the bomb go off rather than defusing it and use that to triangulate Dennis's signal from the detonating signal. So Michael needs four people to do this and is like, we'll probably need to bring my mom in. And then Fee kind of looks at Jesse and goes, Jesse will do it. And then immediately hangs up and Jesse's like, uh, Jesse will not do it. I am on this job because it's the, you know, the thing that I got burned for. So like, I will finish this, but Michael can fuck off. And Fee's like, mm, can he though? Cause like innocent people are at stake. And Jesse's like, fuck, fine. I'll help. Always playing the innocent people card. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, at the end of the day, like Jesse's whole thing is that he wants to do the right thing. And like, yeah, he's a little more like, violent than everyone else on the team. I mean, I guess other than Fiona. And like, he's a little more hot tempered and like that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, Jesse's a good dude. And all he wants to do is do good. And you know, he can't, he, he can't deny that this team does good work. So he's, he's on board. And a little later, Psychopath Dennis calls to tell Deaf Walt or Ward or Wade or whatever the fuck his name is, who cares? Turn on the TV. There's something on the news. And so he's like, yeah, I did that. And then a little explosion happens outside in the pool and all of our friends who are in different areas with their cell phones help triangulate the signal. And what they learn from this triangulation is that uh, the guy is in Fee's neighborhood. So the next target for him is Fiona. This is both good and bad news. Bad news because the man is bringing a bomb to Fiona's house. Good news because a man is bringing a gun to Fiona's house and she can defend herself. So she like excitedly cocks a double barreled shotgun and they're like, no, Fee, we can't just kill him. We also need to know where the other bombs are. And at this point he's killed the other guy. So this is the only way we're going to find out. And she's like, "Ugh, fine. And so she skedaddles and uh, Dennis goes into her place. And so everyone regroups back outside of Fiona's and Michael's plan is to go in as intern Gordon and try to like get him to talk while the rest of the gang shoots out the windows to sort of put the pressure on him to make him feel like he really does need this ally so he better spill unfortunately this immediately gets called uh this immediately goes out the window because uh some cops start pulling up and it looks like fiona's new neighbors saw dennis with a big suspicious like duffel bag broke into fiona's house and now they're kind of nervous you know understandably So they're like, fuck, now the cops are out here. So we can't start like firing on your apartment because that's not going to go over well. And Michael's like, you know what? It's fine. I'm going in anyways. I'll figure it out. And so Michael goes in. And if you'll remember earlier in the episode, like his injury was a real problem and detriment to his work. But uh, this would be the time you'd think where maybe it would come into play. It does not. Michael, he pushes through it like a real man. And that's the last we'll hear of it, which is very annoying, but fine. They briefly mention it next week, but it's even more of an afterthought. Right. Well, they they mention that he's hurt, but it doesn't actually affect his ability to do anything. Exactly. Yeah. It's like... His behavior be doesn't nice really have to like change. A, it'd be nice if this was like an arc where like he was actually... Sidelined. He had to be kind of the man in the van for everything. Exactly. I always think about in community where like they just put Chevy Chase in a wheelchair for a few episodes and like he was just in it for a while and like that was like a plot point because he was like recovering or whatever like if they had done that with Michael where it was like he full-on could not do work 
And he had to rely on his team. Yeah, I think it would have been interesting. It would have been a fun change. And it would have, like, made the Jesse stuff maybe a little bit more, like, like an immediate need. Because, like, it's nice that Jesse is helping. They would have figured it out without Jesse. But, like, if Jesse had to come back because he has to basically tag in for Michael, I think that that would have been really, really interesting. Exactly. Again, but this show is afraid of being too good. Yeah, well, it, it's afraid of like making their lead character not a hundred percent competent at all times. Exactly. But anyways, so Michael slash Gordon goes into the house and calls out to Dennis and is like, "Hey, man, the police are here because a jogger saw you and you know called the cops." But don't worry, I took care of her. And Dennis is like, "I'm sorry, you what?" And he's like, "Yeah." I'm one of you. I'm like you now. I, I I killed somebody who was in the way of our mission. And then this is like, fuck, this is going to be so bad. There's like, we're going to we're going to get caught. You're such an idiot. And, you know, all this stuff. Um, and then like more and more cops pull out outdoors, which feels like kind of an overreaction, given that as far as the neighbors know, one dude walked like broke into a house. There's like four or five different cop cars and like all starting to surround the house for one suspicious person who was seen breaking into a home nearby. I don't know. It just feels like a lot of cops. It is weird. Anyways. Did they call more cops? Like, did they decide that was the play? Well, I don't don't know. know. I don't think so. Like, it it looked like the way that the gang outside was reacting, it seemed like this was a further unexpected development. Like, they were like, shit, there's way more cops here. What is Michael going to do? But then as more and more cops get there. Yeah, I actually know. Here, I here's how I know that the gang didn't call more cops. And it's because immediately as the cops get there, they're like, shit, these guys all have radio signals. Like, if yeah. one of them is on the wrong frequency, Michael is up in smoke. So, like, they immediately sort of disperse and are like, hey, we, he has a bomb. We definitely saw him have a bomb go in there. Nobody use your walkies. So, like, the gang kind of splits up to, like, talk to the cops. Like, hey, please, God, don't use your walkie-talkies. He's got a bomb in there. And um, back indoors, uh, Dennis is, like, trapped. And he's like, you know what? <laughs> if I'm going down, I'm taking some of these pigs with me. So he, like officially hooks up the bomb and like sits in a chair and goes on this like very long soliloquy about like how important his work is and like how, you know, other people will carry on in his name. And he's so glad, you know, and De- uh, Gordon, frankly, should be thrilled that he's going to go down and martyrdom with him. And Michael like kneels in fake reverence, which is very funny. Like he like kneels all excitedly. And then like, as this dude is talking, he realizes he's not going to like tell him where the last addresses are. And he's like, shit. So he basically incepts the guy. He does that classic thing where he like says, oh, you're a genius. I know what your plan is. And then tells him a new plan that helps Michael out better. And the new plan is he's like, wow, you're so smart. If you take me out like a hostage, like I'll just seem like a victim. But then if you tell me where the next bombs are, I can carry on your good work. I can go explode the rest of the bombs to make sure that they weren't planted in vain. And Dennis is like, you're right. You could do that. That was my plan. And so Michael walks out of the house alone, which does kind of undercut the whole, like, maybe he's the victim, maybe he's the bomber sort of thing. Like, it felt like it maybe would have made more sense for Dennis to also come out, obviously being the one with the bomb to, like, set up that he was the victim, but whatever. So Michael immediately is, like, fucking handcuffed because of course he is. He's just, like, a guy that came out of the house that they know there's a bomb in. And he kind of, like, gives the team a a grimace wink that indicates to them, hey, this hurts. They're they're handcuffing me when I was shot in this arm not long ago, but also indicates 
I know where the rest of the addresses are. We're good. So then the other three are like, okay, cool. Michael has the addresses. So what do we do about Dennis? We can't just let like the cops run in because if they run in, like they're totally out of their depth. They have no idea what they're dealing with with this guy. And as Sam and Fiona are kind of like going back and forth of like, what should we do? Uh, Jesse sends a radio signal and detonates the bomb. And all of a sudden the fucking house just explodes. And Jesse's like, yeah, well, he, sometimes you just got to put him down and then walks away. And honestly, fucking dope move. That's the second time this episode where like a really violent thing has happened unexpectedly. And I think it really works. It's very surprising. And it's very cool that like Jesse's like, I'll help, but also kind of fuck you guys. Yeah, like, there's no, no time for this. Interesting. He's just going to die. And like, that was the Kill first you. time that Jesse actually got to be in charge of something like that. Usually he's like, we should kill this guy. And they're like, Jesse, calm down. And this time he's just like, fuck this dude. And he just detonates the bomb. Everyone's like, Jesus. I know. It's so, it was so startling. And that's the most possibly interesting thing Jesse has done the entire show so far. So like, I am digging this arc for him. Like he's sort of reluctantly back in the fold, but he's also like, I'm also not on the team. I am a free agent and I made a unilateral decision that I am in no way unhappy with. But like, yeah, fucking got dark. Now. Do you mean the Green Arrow? No, the Green Ranger from the Power Rangers. No, I meant the Green Arrow from DC Comics. We're both nerds. We get it. (laughs) But yeah, now Fiona is homeless. So now I'm officially like calling it that at the end of this season, Michael and Fiona move in together because like her, she had a place to live. And next week she's staying in a hotel, which is wild. Why is she not staying with Madeline? We know Madeline has several free beds. Like, she had she has at least two other bedrooms plus the apartment that Michael was staying in, like the old Jesse apartment. I mean, maybe she wants to fuck Michael and she doesn't want to fuck Michael at Madeline. Maybe. Well, but I don't think Michael's doing any fucking because he's very hurt. Anyways, we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> we got to finish this episode. But like the thing is, at the point if she moves in, then like he's going to get better. Well, yeah, but then they can go to the loft and fuck. That's true. They can't go to the loft. <laughs> This is what I'm saying. It's very weird that she's at a hotel next week, but we'll deal with that next week. So uh, everything is fine, I guess. The case is over and the innocent people are are alive still. So that's something. So then we have a very emotionally charged heart to heart back at Madeline's place between Madeline and Michael, where uh, by the end, Madeline tells him softly but firmly that he's one of the good guys and she is so proud of him. And like, I legit got emotional during the scene. Like these two are on fire this episode. They're so good in scenes together. I'm so happy. And then the scene ends with Madeline revealing that she's bought Michael a gift and he opens it and it's Dun, 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 the burn notice sunglasses. <laughs> and so, of course, the next scene is Michael wearing his classic burn notice sunglasses, which were lost at some point previously. I don't remember. Um, I don't remember when I Because management mailed them back to him at the beginning of season three. I guess they must have gotten destroyed at some point during the third season. I think season. they did. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. The burn of the sunglasses are back, baby. And the first time we get to see him wearing them is like a slow motion walk-in scene where he like gets out of a car wearing the burn notice sunglasses. I thought and... that was how the episode was going to end. And then it turned out there was more episode. <laughs> I know. Well, I think that's too cheesy even for burn notice. So like he walks up and basically he goes to meet with Jesse to uh, thank him for doing good work. And um, they're all walking up 
to where Sweeney was going next. So they they go to the crypto guy's house and they look in the window and they see Sweeney dead on the ground because like they were kind of wondering, like, I wonder if this guy like knows what he has. Like, I wonder if A, he was able to decode the information and B, if he even knows the magnitude of the information he now has his hands on and Sweeney is dead. So they're like, yeah, he knows. (laughs) This dude definitely knows what he's got. So they go in and kind of like look around and they find some emails, but they do know that some guy is in the wind with like a lot of security clearance and like a lot of uh, high up connections. He is now in the wind with a probably decoded list of all the people that burned Michael and their locations. End of episode. Yeah. I To talk uh, briefly again about the Madeline and uh, Michael scene, one of the things mm-hmm. that it seems interesting that they're doing at this point when she like buys him the sunglasses and everything is it seems like now with like Vaughn gone and like this They've got this list of, like, people, like, who've burned him or whatever. They have this discussion about why he does what he does. And it seems like this moment where they're trying to be, like, to really distance himself from the fact that he wants to get back into the spy game. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like a moment of, like, this is Michael. He is is burn notice. And he helps people because he's burn notice. And so he puts on his burn notice sunglasses and is burn notice. And that's, like what it's going to be. Finally, he's going to get revenge on the people that kicked him out of the CIA, but his primary goal is no longer to get back into the CIA. Presumably. Allegedly. We'll see how long that lasts. Okay, let's run through some spy tips. All right, let's do this. Okay, so this is the one that I'm kind of confused by because maybe I missed the setup. But number one, the site of a break-in is like a broken bone. Years later, the spot will have been made stronger or weaker by the ordeal. A replacement window pane installed with putty and weather stripping costs about 10 cents to remove, which means like he uses a dime to like jimmy it. But how do we know that there was a break-in here? Did I miss that? I think... I also thought this was weird, but I think we know there is a break in there because of the replacement window pane. Got it. Okay. So, so it's just like. I was wondering if I just like missed where he knew that this place had been broken into. No, I think but he maybe looked it was at the just he, he, he noticed and, the putty. Yeah, exactly. He noticed the putty Got and it. was like, ah. I mean, I guess that's useful to like if I have yeah. that kind of a window. Yeah, okay, cool. Like, yeah, what what confused me about this was the context. The actual tip itself seems fairly useful. No, yeah, exactly. And I, I also like the turn of phrase, uh, to re- take it out costs about 10 cents. And he like, uses that's, a that's dime funny, to, he, yeah, it is. Yeah, he uses a dime to jimmy it. Yeah. Uh, cool. Number two, bribery is a delicate art. Success often depends on less on how much cash you offer and more on how you offer it. Pretending to believe there's a standard fee for what you're asking for means you're less likely to report the bribe. And if you come across as unlikable, even a normally ethical person might not pass up the chance to make a buck off your stupidity. This one is interesting because, like, it sounds like a good tip, but I also kind of don't believe it. I don't know. I think this is interesting for because basically it kind of covers your bases. Like, if you're going into a place where you don't know if somebody accepts bribes, like, there are sort of two ways it could go. Like, one is they might not accept it because they think that you're, like, a cop. And so in that case, like, pretending that you don't think that what you're doing is a bribe might get you off scot-free. And then the other part of it is that even if this person, like, doesn't think you're a cop they might be too good of a person to take a bribe, in which case you act like a dick (laughs) so that they're like, you know what? Screw this guy. Sure, I'll take your money, idiot. Yeah. But also, like... I think it's a psychologically interesting thing. 
it's think it's psychologically interesting, but like this is the sort of thing where like if Michael Wilson, the spy, told me it, I'd be like, oh hey, that's cool. But Jason Tracy, the writer, telling me it makes me not believe it. Like it doesn't <laughs> feel like I don't know. I thought I this was interesting. I wouldn't attempt this. I don't know. I, I don't might. think I would. I mean, not you know, I'm not bribing anyone. But exactly, we you're not bribing anyone. But like, but like, this gives us parameters for like a psychological gambit. When usually we're just like, you gotta act tough, you know, or whatever. Like we've accepted tips before, where it's like you have to get them to like come to you rather than going to them. And like, here's some ways you could do that. And this is a way of like, here's how you do a bribe without necessarily it being a bribe. I mean, that makes sense. And there's two different components to it. If it was just one of the components, if it was just the pretending to believe it's a standard fee bit, I probably wouldn't have allowed it. But because there's like a, you know, a contingency plan to the initial tip. I like that. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll take it. Cool. Number three. Despite the expression, very few people actually shoot the messenger. Making a fake delivery is a great way to get close to a well-defended position. Carry a large enough bouquet and you can get very close without being ID'd. I like this one and we should give it to them because Sam worked really hard on it. Okay, cool. Number four. Foot chases rarely last long. During the initial burst of adrenaline, it's important to keep your target in view. If you can, you can probably catch up. Few people have anything left in the tank after a quarter mile at top speed. So basically it's let them get their, you know, burst out of, uh, you know, out of their system. You don't need to catch up to them right away. You'll get in, you'll, you'll get them eventually. You'll win the long game. Yeah. I think it's a real tortoise in the hair situation. Well, not quite a tortoise in the hair, but you know what I mean. Because my my instinct probably would have been like, I got to catch them as soon as possible versus like, I'll let them get ahead for a little bit. As long as I know generally where they're going, I'll get them eventually. Like, I don't know if I would have necessarily known to be a little bit more patient during a foot chase. I mean, if I'm ever in a foot chase, I'm losing the foot chase. Well, right. I mean, but that's you and me. But exactly. theoretically, you know, when yeah. we get super buff during the quarantine, which is definitely what we're both doing on our off time, right? Oh, yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> maybe we'll become this kind of person. But anyways, that's fine. Number five, triangulating someone's position from a radio or cellular signal works exactly the way it sounds. By recording the sound and intensity of the signal from three separate positions, it's fairly easy to calculate the point of origin. And a computer program can do the work a lot faster if your trigonometry is rusty. I mean, it's explaining what triangulating something is, but like... Yeah, I wasn't sure about this one. So, like, they they do specifically, like, because, like, I definitely, you know, I've heard the word triangulate, but I don't know if I could have articulated what it meant to triangulate a system. I've, I've certainly never seen people do it manually, like, not with, like, cell towers. I'm familiar with the concept of triangulation. Like, I basically get it. Mm, I mean, I probably you. couldn't do it, but, like... Yeah, I don't know. So there's only one more possible spy tip, uh, and I don't actually know if that one is good either. So just know, great episode of television may hang in the balance. Exactly. Or a great episode of Burn Notice. Or a great episode of Burn Notice, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'll give it to him because I don't think the next one's good. It's fine. If you don't think the next one's good, then I won't even read it. Uh, so yeah, there are exactly five good spy tips, uh, and therefore it gets that point in terms of whether or not this is a great episode of Burn Notice. Uh, did we use Spycraft over Violence? Um. Yeah, they did. They did some. Yeah, I don't. Spy I don't think we did any violences. I mean, Jesse did a violence. Well, Jesse did a violence, but Jesse did that out of like anger. But the that was like a that was like a climax. That wasn't necessarily like the main tactic for solving. Yeah, the yeah, they like did stuff. I mean, crimes. like any time that involves Michael doing like an alias for large amounts of time, that's like a proper alias. Mm-hmm. That's like spycraft. So like, yeah. So yeah, I'll yeah, give it this. I think 
Yeah, I think that there was there was a lot of good stuff in this. Uh, exactly. So definitely, definitely Spycraft for violence. And uh, number three, was there a speaking distinct of, alias? Speaking of aliases. Yeah, speaking of aliases, Gordon, what was his name? Gordon Levitt or something? Gordon Levin, I believe. Jeffrey Donovan yeah, was I mean, really good. He was really good. His, like, I, this I feel like. was a character. Like I, he he did a character. I I feel like anytime Michael Weston acts good, anytime Jeffrey Donovan does a good acting thing, like I feel bad for years and years of like calling him a cardboard box. <laughs> that like I feel like I need to over exaggerate my compliments when he does a good job because I I really do think I've come to appreciate Jeffrey Donovan as a performer a lot more through doing this podcast. Even though I was a fan of the show before, it was always a matter of like yeah, but Jeffrey Donovan's like kind of the weak part, and I don't know if I believe that anymore. And so I always want to try to call out props when i believe he earns them yeah no he was good and i like this alias yeah it's a fun one i i think we like it when he's like a little when he has to play beta yeah (laughs) because it's it's so off type for him okay cool number four where fee and sam used well were they i think fee was because she gets to be like violent a couple of times like yeah she gets excited to use her shotgun she um <laughs> drags jesse's ass all over the place and has that really good jesse scene where they're like playing a angry married couple um she like yeah she's she kind of takes the lead on the like b plot macro arc yeah totally this week. yeah i'll give you a feed uh, I don't Sam, know about I don't know about Sam though. I think Sam, Sam delivers some Sam flowers, a, but that's about it. Yes, I mean Sam has some good moments, but I don't know if he was necessarily peak Bruce Campbell no. this episode. You know, like he was he was mostly support this so like, time. Yeah. So like a point. So I did like Doctor Finley. Doctor Finley was fun. Yeah, but that wasn't even him. He didn't do <laughs> exactly. Doctor Finley. Like, <laughs> it was it was about Sam, but it wasn't with Sam. Yeah. Okay, so that's point five. This already because it got the first three, it's gonna win. It's gonna get yeah. burn notice. But, but also, I think Jesse was interesting in this one. He blew I up. I definitely think Jesse was interesting because Jesse was helpful and also not like I don't know if I would say that the last thing he does is not helpful, but it's a statement, and it it's is. a statement that and it's a call that none of the other ones would have made, which. It like inherently makes the dynamic of the ensemble different. And like that's all that we're looking for from Jesse is like do something new with the dynamic. Don't just be another guy there. No, yeah, totally. I'm with it. So technically, this is a five out of five great episode. Well, of it's a four point five out of five. As much as I enjoyed this episode, I don't think I'm going to make a big stink for great episode of television. Are are you? No, again, like maybe if it I had problems with it. If it had integrated all of this weird stuff better, mm-hmm. uh, like maybe, but as it was, it was really fun. I did really enjoy it's, it. It is a really fun episode. Like it is, it is a great episode of Burn Notice, but I would not, I would not necessarily call it a great episode of television overall. No, yeah, there I would was, not. There were definitely some thematic things that they set up that were interesting, but they didn't quite follow through with. And some thematic things that they set up that didn't quite jive with the other thematic things they set up. Yeah, and like again, if they'd maybe pulled off that character thing with Michael and his injury, that would would have pushed it over the edge. But like totally, because yeah, because then the episode becomes about Michael Weston having to like reckon with his own limitations. Yeah, which is uh, an interesting character study that we haven't actually gotten to see Michael Weston reckon with. But yeah, there. Or if they had made him slightly more thematically interesting and thematically consistent serial killer, I'm not saying I agree necessarily with your thing with it. But I will give you that, like, he did kind of come out of nowhere. And usually the strength of a serial killer being introduced into a show like this is to give us, like, a chase 
for the next couple of episodes, you know? Yeah. Like, he would become the CIA plot. Um, and usually they have, like, more interesting than just he's a bad bomb maker who, like, has a specific moral reason why he kills people. Yeah. Again, it's like sort of... Some kind of puzzle they have to fill out. Like, they, he's not a puzzle. Like, he's not he a puzzle. He plays it all out. Like, yeah, he's not, like, the thing that they were trying to make Simon. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, because generally there's, like, yeah, like... Serial killers are, like, zealots, or they're, like, puzzle masters, mm-hmm. or they're Patrick But Bateman. yeah, like, the zealotry usually has a more interesting, like, rea- uh, manifestation yeah. than I bomb people, and I'm not actually that good at it, because I'm kind of, like, yeah. stupid, and so sometimes I mean, they just go off. Yeah. I mean, that's more realistic. Sure. And I'll give you that. <laughs> but it definitely doesn't make a, quite as exciting of a television episode. No, it doesn't. There's a lot working for this episode, but not quite enough. So not quite enough. nice try, Jason. A swing and a miss, but uh, we, I'm sure you'll get us next time. So with that, thank you again to Vincent E.L. for our theme music. You can find more of Vince's music at vincentel.bandcamp.com. And until next week, bye. It just seems like we're evaluating the spy tips as a kind of writing. <laughs>